0: If you could open your Bible to Mark chapter 7, we're almost halfway through the gospel of Mark now, and the reason we do this, the reason that every week when we get together we open up the Bible, we teach through books of the Bible, is because we believe that this is the book that God gave us to show us who Jesus is. Um, and, And we believe that what everybody here needs, whether we feel it or not, is to turn from what's driving us and trust in Jesus. That the most important thing, the most relevant thing for everybody who's here is that we would see Jesus for who he is, believe in him, see how he meets the needs of our hearts, and turn from all the other ways that we've tried to replace him so that we could have life in him. And so if you come in today and you are a believer in Christ and you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years, the hope is that you'll turn from those things that have slowly started to drive you and trust again in Jesus. And if you're here today and you would say that you're not a believer in Christ, the hope would be that you would turn from the gods that you follow. And you might say, I don't believe in any, but, but all of us have something on the throne of our lives. We all have something that drives us. And the hope would be that we would be able to compare that God to Jesus and see how no God measures up, no one's good like Jesus, no one's wise like Jesus, so that we could put our trust in him and be absolutely transformed by him. And so, so the hope always is that he would meet with us as we teach his word and that that's where faith comes from. Uh, We believe faith is not an emotion that we stir up. Uh, We're not trying to to just get everybody excited and call that faith. Uh, We're not just trying to give everybody optimism and call that faith. We think excitement and optimism definitely will come with faith pretty often. But faith is when we see Jesus for who he is and trust in him and anchor our hearts in him uh, and and commit our lives to him as we see how good and pleasing and satisfying Jesus really is. Um, so, So Mark chapter 7 verse 24, let's pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it reveals to us who you are. Uh, Jesus, we want to know you more. We want to turn from our sin and turn from our unbelief and turn from all these other false gods that we make for ourselves and trust in you. And so, God, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that we would see you as exceedingly wise. Uh, Lord, I know when we open up your word, we're weak, um, and I'm weak, and I'm tired, and, and Lord, I'm just asking you to speak, because I believe that you're the one who transforms lives anyway. You're the one who changes hearts anyway. Um, so, so give me your words. Help me to, to show who you are in your scripture, and I pray that it would help us to leave here differently, and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Are you guys warm down there? It's crazy. It's never warm in here, but now it's hot. Um, we could probably turn it off, Andy. I don't know. We're working on it. Um, it's just right a couple Sundays a year. Um, but uh, Anyway, Mark 7, verse 24. Here's what's going on. It says, From there he arose and went to, away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. So, So throughout this story of the life of Jesus, one of the things that we've seen is that he and his disciples have reached a point where they're tired. Uh, Jesus has become a celebrity. There are people in all the Jewish towns where he's gone who are flocking to him. Big crowds are coming anytime he's around. He tries to get away from them, but even when he takes a boat and goes out across the sea to get away from people, still there are crowds that run around the sea and meet him there. And so, so they're tired, they're worn down, they're wearing thin, and Jesus decides then to go to these Gentile territories where they don't necessarily know as much of who he is. They've probably heard of Jesus, but they haven't necessarily seen much of him, so they don't know what he looks like. And he goes to stay in a house with the hopes that nobody would know that he's there, with the hopes that he could rest up and recover. And, and this is good for us to see, especially those of us who have jobs that involve a whole lot of direct working with people. Now, if you're a doctor, or you're a stay-at-home mom, or you're a counselor, or you're a teacher, sometimes you can almost feel guilty because you want to get away from people sometimes. Um, where, where you feel like, man, I've got this calling on my life to work with these people. I'm supposed to love these people. I want, to, I want to invest in these people. But sometimes I reach that point after a few months where all I want to do is get away from them. And you wonder, is there something wrong with that? But Jesus never sinned, and here he got away from people. He recognized that as a human being, he could outrun his supply lines and he needed time just with him and his father. He needed time to rest up. And so he would get away even from the people that God had called him to so that he could rest. But, verse 25, here's what happens. It says, But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this woman comes up to Jesus and her daughter is not well. It says that her daughter is possessed. She has this unclean spirit. And she's heard about this Jesus. She's probably heard about how he cast demons out in the synagogue. And and she wanted to see that happen to her daughter. So she comes to Jesus and she bows down at his feet, even though he's there to rest, he's there on vacation. And she just starts begging him to please heal her daughter. Uh, Matthew tells the story in a little more detail. In Matthew 15, verse 22, it says, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. So she comes, and she's crying, and she's begging, and she just won't stop. She's persisting. She just keeps asking, even though they're telling her to go away. She's absolutely sure that Jesus is the only one who can help her daughter, and the disciples are annoyed by her. They say, Jesus, here's another one. We're trying to rest, and here she is expecting us to be here to work. Um, She doesn't understand what what you're all about. You're the Jewish Messiah. You're supposed to come for the Jews to rescue God's people, and here's this Gentile woman coming and begging for part of the blessing, so send her away. I mean, our lives have been whirlwinds for months. We just need a break. We need to sleep. We need to rest up. So please, just, just go get rid of this woman. So Jesus answers her, and at first it looks like he's doing what the disciples wanted. In Matthew 15, verse 24, it says, He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. I and mean, Jesus' ministry up until this point had been mainly to the Jews. Uh, he did some ministry in Gentile territories, but for the most part, he was going to Jewish people. He was the Jewish Messiah. He was the one that the Jewish scriptures had predicted would come. And so he was there to minister to Jewish people. And so he looks at this woman who is a Canaanite and says, I was sent to the Jews. And these Canaanites, if you read through the Old Testament, which was the whole Bible they had in Jesus' day, if you read through the Old Testament, the Canaanites are the enemies of God's people. They're the bad guys. They're the ones that if, if God is going to bless his people, it's probably going to involve diminishing his blessings to the Canaanites. It's probably going to involve pushing them out of the land and allowing God's people to have prosperity and rule and dominion in the land. So you wouldn't think at all that God was going to bless the Canaanites. You wouldn't think at all that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, would come to bless the Canaanites. You know, this would be like saying, I really love America, but I tithe to Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda. You know, I, I send terrorist groups 10% of my money, but I love America. Well, no, you don't. I mean, you can't, you can't say you love America and then support our enemies. And so here's Jesus confronted by a woman who is one of his enemies, and you would expect that he would send her away because he's here to bless these people, not bless their enemies. So she comes and she's begging, saying, Lord, please help me. And she doesn't give up. Even though this now is beneath anybody's dignity to keep begging when someone tells you to go away, even though she isn't worthy to approach Jesus because she is a Canaanite, she worships the wrong God, she's from the wrong culture, Uh, she was a woman, which in their culture was considered to be a very low thing. She had no right to approach Jesus, but she just keeps begging. And the reason that she does that is because she's a mom, and this is her daughter, she desperately wants to see her little daughter transformed by Jesus. And while this isn't necessarily the main point of the story, as parents, we need to catch this. We need to, to see the way that this woman would move heaven and earth to get her daughter to Jesus and do the same things for our kids. You know, every parent in the Bible is called a children's minister. We're all called to minister to our kids. We're all called to lead our kids to know Christ, to lead those kids to follow Christ. And it's great that we've got a lot of people around us that help, you know, it's great to be a part of a church where we have awesome Sunday school teachers. And I know my daughters come in and they love their Sunday school classes. They love their Sunday school teachers. Um, I love what our kids are being taught in Sunday school. I think the Gospel Project curriculum is just the best stuff around. I feel like our kids are learning the best stuff. They're going through the Bible in three years, and in those three years they learn how every story of the Bible talks about Jesus, how it all points to the redemption that Jesus brings. And so I feel like my kids, by the time they're seven years old, are going to have three years of hearing, not just from me, but from a lot of other people who love them, how much God's plan of redemption can apply to them and and what all of the Bible means. And so I love that they're learning that. I love that we have awesome Sunday school teachers. I know that there are probably a lot of people who are gifted to teach those classes who are still not doing it. And we would encourage you to take those gifts God has given you and start investing in those kids because they need you. We as a church family need you. But having said all that, as parents, we've got to realize there is nobody who's going to love our kids as much as we do. Um, I, I love those Sunday school classes, but I as a parent have to feel the main weight for bringing my kids to Christ. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to recruit all the help I can get, but ultimately my kids walking with God is my responsibility. And your kids walking with God is your responsibility. We're all called as parents to lead our kids to know Christ and nobody will love our kids as well as we do. You know, I spent eight years in youth ministry, and I I met a lot of youth pastors who love teenagers very much. I know we've got tons of um, young life workers who are here today, who are here every week, who love the teenagers that they invest their lives in, and they do good work, but nobody loves your kids as much as you do. You know, if I've got a bunch of kids at my house, and I'm watching them all, and two of my kids are there, and the house catches fire, and I can only grab a couple kids and get out, I'm grabbing my kids. (laughs) Um, And... It's not that I don't love your kids, um, and it's, it's not that I won't be nice to your kids, um, but if I can only get two, I'm taking mine out. And, um, and this is true of, of the way that we lead our kids to Christ. You know, ultimately, no one loves our kids as much as us, and we're supposed to use that love to lead our kids to Christ. All throughout the Bible, it puts the responsibility of leading our kids to know Christ on parents. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 6. It says, "...and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart." you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. He calls parents to diligently teach our kids. Now I think this involves some formal time of sitting down over the scriptures with our kids, which is just essential for us to do. But he also talks about talking to our kids as you walk along, as you go through life, as you're filled with the Spirit of God, as you love Jesus, overflowing that love to your kids to teach them who Jesus is. Because um, if your kids are like mine, pretty often they don't want to sit down for a 45-minute lecture. Um, My kids probably like my sermons less than anybody on the planet. But there are lots of opportunities to talk to my kids about Christ. And if I'm looking for those, and if I'm recognizing that as a parent I need to be diligent to teach them about Christ, I'll find those opportunities. And, and when they're younger, they're slower, and it's, the stuff that they come out with is funny. Our son Hudson right now is hilarious. Um, we talk to him a lot about someday when he's an adult, someday when he's a dad, and he's pretty convinced that he's going to transform into a dad, which means that he can also transform into anything. And so... Um, <laughs> So, like, he'll he'll say, "Yeah, I'll do that when I'm a dad." And someday, when I'm a frog, um, then I'll rib it, <laughs> and then um, and then we'll read through stories of Jesus, and he'll say, "You know, someday when I'm Jesus, I'll do that." <laughs> and so he's he's a Mormon, but um, he's, <laughs> but um, we uh, you know, it, it's not always. It's sometimes it's thankless work trying trying to teach our kids to know Christ, but we're all called to it. And it doesn't have to be dull and boring and lectures and set up the podium and say, now you're going to listen to me. It's as you walk, as you go through life, teaching them about Christ, laughing with them, enjoying the journey that they're on. As parents, that's our calling. You know, there there's some crazy statistics floating around that say that about 80% of kids who are in evangelical churches a year after they graduate from high school would no longer call themselves Christians. And, um, and I think there are a lot of different reasons for that. But one big reason, I think, is that they didn't learn to love and enjoy the gospel and to love and enjoy Jesus at home. They didn't learn the warmth that the gospel brings to a home. They didn't, they didn't have a home that was saturated with the gospel and also full of joy, and they wanted to get away from that as quickly as possible. And so, so let's take responsibility for that as parents, like the responsibility we see this woman taking. But um, let's keep going. Verse 27, she's begging him. We're back in Mark 7, verse 27. It says, and Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, like most of Jesus' recorded words, this is a shocking answer, because you don't call someone a dog. I mean, in our culture, we like dogs, and you still don't call someone a dog. It's still, it's still an insult here, even though a dog is man's best friend. Uh, but in their culture, dogs were more likely to be stray. You know, they wandered around outside. You maybe had some pets, but they probably didn't live in your house with you. They were outside. They were just getting into stuff. Uh, when, when I was in college, Debbie and I had a youth group that we led, and we took a trip to a Sioux Indian reservation, which was an impoverished area, and there were stray dogs all over the place. And those dogs were just gross. Gross. They, they spent their days getting into gross stuff, and they were friendly. They didn't attack you, but they fought each other. They'd always have that fur on their spine standing up, and their tails looked like question marks, and they're getting mad at each other. These were the, the, that's what the dogs were, and you didn't want to pet them because then you smelled like them, and they were just gross. They spent their days getting into trouble. They were, they were disgusting creatures, and this woman comes and says, Jesus, please heal my daughter, and he said, it's not right to take the, the bread that belongs to the kids And give it to the dogs. Wow. You do need a nap, Jesus. Like why 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 would you just jump all over her case like like, so so we read that, but here's the thing. There's a temptation to to read in Jesus' words something sinful, but we know from scripture that Jesus, though he was tempted in every way that we are, was without sin. So he wasn't being deliberately mean, he wasn't being cruel to this woman at all he was speaking in a, in a way that would expose her heart. And Jesus did this pretty often. Jesus spoke in parables. And a reason that he spoke in parables was so that the hearts of the people that he was speaking to could be revealed. Um, sometimes, I don't know if you've got some friends that you can just kind of cut loose with and not be guarded at all. Uh, those friends that you can talk to and just Think out loud. Say whatever you're thinking. And you know that they're going to interpret everything in the right light. They're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. They're going to not leave that conversation thinking less of you because they've known you for a long time. They love you. And anything that you said that was a little bit questionable could be interpreted either way. They're going to interpret it the positive way because they're your friends. They love you and you can just say what you want around them. But then there's probably another group of people where you feel like you have to be very guarded where you feel like even in a casual conversation with them, you should have a lawyer present um, or, or a tape recorder because you know that they're going to take your words and they're going to use them against you someday. They are going to, to hit you with those words. They're going to twist them or they're going to say, you said this and, w- and won't talk about the context. They're going to be against you, even though the words are the same. You, know, you, can say a, one set, you can say a set of words to your friends and say the exact same set of words to your enemies and they will get completely different meanings out of those words because of where their hearts are. And this is a reason that Jesus spoke in parables. Sometimes he said some things where the meaning up front was a little bit unclear, because his goal was not just to communicate meaning through the stories that he told, his goal was to communicate meaning to those who had hearts that were oriented toward him, and to confuse and enrage those hearts were whose hearts were oriented against him. And here's where I get this. I get it from Mark chapter four. I'm not just making this up. Mark four, verse ten, it says, When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That doesn't sound like the reason that we would say that someone tells a story. I know for me, when I tell a story in a sermon, it's to try to make something clear. It's to take some goofy story about my kids and use that to illustrate some point that I'm trying to make that's a little bit harder to, to understand without a story to go alongside it. Jesus's stories were, were brilliant because they were spoken in such a way so that it would communicate truth to people who wanted to hear it, who wanted to accept Jesus on Jesus terms, who, who trusted Jesus so that his friends could be revealed but then also those exact same parables would reveal the hearts of those who were against him. It would make them mad, and they would say, I couldn't possibly mean that about me. This couldn't possibly be true. And so they would continue to hear, but never really hear, continue to see, but never really see. Jesus was a genius at revealing hearts, not just communicating truth. And so that's why he would sometimes speak in some of that language that was very difficult to understand or, or, or tough to hear or it would be easy to take the wrong way so that he could reveal what's in people's hearts. And by the way, a lot of the Bible is written like that. You you read through it, and sometimes if you want to find a reason to not believe the Bible, you'll find it there. There's enough in the Bible to give you a reason not to believe. But if you read it, giving it the benefit of the doubt, saying, this is the Word of God, and I want this book to read me, I want this book to judge me and change me, then it will change your life. And whenever God's truth and God's people get into a circumstance, hearts get revealed. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So he says that the people of God get around people and those people kind of smell a certain way. And to those who, who want Jesus, it smells like life. To those who don't, it smells like death. And the word of God, when you open it up, if you want Jesus, it'll be life to you. If you don't, it'll be death. You'll hate it. God speaks in, in, in mysterious in beautiful and wise ways. And and so he's doing this here. He's speaking to this woman and saying, it's not right for me to give the dogs the crumbs that fall from the table to test and reveal what's in her heart. At this point, she can either be the enemy of Jesus who says, how dare you say that about me? You don't even know me. You don't know my story. How, How dare you not help me and rebel against him? Or she could be the friend of Jesus who says, this guy is out for my good. He must be testing. He must be teaching. He must be aiming to bless me. And so she's able to interpret Jesus the right way because she has a heart that's oriented toward Jesus. So what's she going to do? Verse 28, it says, But she answered him, Yes, Lord. So she acknowledges that what Jesus says about her is true and it's right. She understands a little bit of what Jesus is doing here that most people at this point did not understand yet. Um, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. He was coming to God's people. He was going to rescue God's people from their sins. But then as soon as Jesus ascended to heaven, then everything was going to basically blow the doors open. They, they said, okay, here's Israel that Jesus has come to save. He's going to preach the gospel to them. And then Jesus dies on the cross. He's buried and he rises again. In the New Testament, we see this explosion of the gospel message where it's not just for Jews, but now it's going all over the world. It's going to Gentiles. And the book of Acts is this book of chaos. And what's going on when all these people who didn't have a Jewish background are coming to faith in God and they're trying to figure out how Jewish are they supposed to be? What are we supposed to do with this? It's this total confusion. A bunch of guys hold these councils where they're saying, what do we even tell these people to do? And they said, "I don't, tell them not to sleep around or drink blood and worship Jesus. Like, just go do that. Like they just, they're, they're looking for answers. How do we manage the fact that this gospel is for, for everybody now? How do we handle this great news? But that hadn't all burst free yet. Jesus was mainly going to the Jews. And this woman is an outsider they would often call the Gentiles the dogs because they were the unclean people. They were the ones that weren't worthy of God's blessings. They were the ones who were were on the outside of the kingdom while the Jews were the sons. They were the ones on the inside of the kingdom. And so Jesus says to her, I can't take the bread that belongs to the children of Israel and give it to a dog on the outside. And she doesn't say, who are you to call me a dog? She says, yes, Lord. Yeah, I'm not worthy of your blessing. I'm outside of your scope right now. Right now, your job description is not to, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles yet. I see what you're doing. I get what you're doing. I know where your grace is going to go in the future, but I'm not there yet. So her response to Jesus is, is that she says he's right. You know, there are two big reasons that we won't seek Jesus, and this lady avoids both of those errors. One of them is arrogance, where we say, I don't need a savior." I mean, I'm, I'm pretty together. I'm a good guy. I don't need anyone to save me from my sins. I'll save myself from my sins. I'll just do good things. I'll be a good neighbor, pay my taxes, pay my bills. I'll be a good guy. But there's no way I'm going to go and kneel before a savior. I'm a grown man. I don't need a God. I can handle this. But when your child is sick, you're not thinking I can handle this. That breaks you that wears you down you've got nothing else you see your heart you see your unworthiness you see your helplessness and so this woman it's pretty easy for her to not be arrogant in this situation but then there's the twin temptation and that's to not come to jesus because we recognize how bad we are and we think that he could never bridge that gap you know in this woman's case it would be like saying you know you're right i don't even worship the right god i'm defiled I'm broken. I'm just a dog. Why would Jesus ever bless a dog like me and run the other direction? But this woman handles it the right way. She doesn't appeal to her rights. She doesn't say, Jesus, I deserve this blessing. She knew she didn't. She doesn't appeal to how great she is. She's just saying, yes, I'm I'm a dog. I'm bad. But she doesn't allow her own sense of unworthiness to send her away from Jesus. She goes to Jesus despite her sense of her unworthiness. She goes to Jesus, not claiming her rights, but still going to him and begging him for help. And this really is is the way we need to be too, where we recognize that we're unworthy. We recognize we can't come to Jesus, but we go to Jesus anyway, not because I deserve it, but because his grace is sufficient, because he loves, because his cross is enough. So she acknowledges that what Jesus says is true. She says, yes, Lord. And then she says, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she says, Jesus, that's normally the way it works. You know, the family gathers around and they eat, and then if there are leftovers, then you take all those leftovers, scrape them off the plates, throw them in the pile, and then the dogs can eat those leftovers. And I know that that right now we're still feeding the sons. I know right now you're still going to the Jews and feeding them. But also, sometimes when there's just so much bread on the table, when there's so much, where there's this huge abundance and and the kids aren't eating it all, they're crumbs. That fall from the table, and the dogs can eat even while the sons are eating. So she says, "Yeah, I'm, I'm a dog, and yeah, the sons are eating right now. But there's also a lot that they're not eating. They're not all eating you up, Jesus. They're not all saying that you're right and true. A lot of them are rejecting you. There are crumbs falling off the table, and what you bring is such a super abundance that they would be beyond full if they were to to take you in anyway. So, so Jesus, please feed me and feed me now." I know it goes against the plan. I know it goes against the order, but I'm desperate right now, so feed me. Now, had she sinned? Yes. Was she worthy to approach Jesus? No. Did she worship the right God? No. His assessment of her was absolutely accurate, but she pushes back and says, yes, what you say is true, but I believe that there is an abundance of grace with you. I believe that you will bless me, that you will have a heart toward me. And so I'm going to seek you anyway, not because I deserve it, but because you're that good. You're good enough to bless someone who doesn't deserve it. So when we feel sinful and broken and unclean, we should never allow that truth, that's probably accurate what we feel, to keep us from Christ. In fact, it should compel us toward Christ. Martin Luther said this, he said, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, Tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. So yeah, the assessment of us is true, but his grace is truer. The gap between us and God is great, but his grace is greater. What, what we have done to offend God is absolutely massive, but his cross is enough to cover all of that. And it really is arrogant for us to say, you know, I'm, I'm just going to wallow in self-pity and feel bad about myself because God could never bless someone like me. To say that he couldn't bless someone like us is to stand at the foot of the cross, see the Son of God being torn to shreds, and say, well, it's not enough for me. My sin's a big deal. It's a bigger deal than even that. It's not true. His grace is enough for us. And if we get this, if we get what this woman gets, it'll change our lives. It'll change the way we pray, because so often we won't pray because we have that sense of our own unworthiness. You know, why would God listen to me? Why would God bless me? I don't deserve to approach God's throne. Of course you don't. But that's what grace is all about. Grace is all about forgiving and accepting people who have no business approaching God's throne. It's all about taking the dogs and giving them a place at the table. That's what grace is. And so, so, yeah, we can come to the throne of grace with confidence. We can pray boldly. And the, while our assessment of our weak and all of our sin is absolutely true, God's grace is enough to always bridge that gap. So we can pray. We can pray because we're confident in Jesus, not because we're confident in ourselves. And this will change our whole outlook on God if we really trust that his posture toward us is that he's willing to bless us. And you know, we sing that God works all things together for our good because the book of Romans says that. It says that God works all things together for good for those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. But sometimes we don't believe that. We don't believe God would work things together for my good because I'm on the outside. I'm a dog. I'm an enemy of God. He can't possibly be working things out well for me. Well, the truth is I am a dog and I am an enemy, but his grace is enough. This will change the way that we pursue assurance of salvation. I know many of us, and it's a lot more than we'll admit it, but many of us struggle with, am I a Christian? Have I been saved? Have my sins been washed away? And the place that we always look for the evidence that I'm really a Christian is at ourselves. We do what Spurgeon called navel-gazing, where we're always looking at ourselves and saying, am I fruitful enough? Am I good enough? Do I care about God enough? Do I have enough zeal? Can I convince myself on the basis of my resume that I'm a Christian? Well, that's the totally wrong approach to get there. The right approach to get there is to say, is Jesus enough? Was his fruitful life enough for me? Because that's what got credited to my account on the cross. Was his death enough to pay the price that I deserve? Is his grace enough? Does he love enough? Is he big enough? for me to be a Christian. Because then what that does is if you're not a believer in Christ, it's by looking to Christ and building your faith in him that you become a believer. And if you are a believer in Christ, the place that dissolves all your doubts is by looking to Jesus and building your faith in him. We'll never find enough evidence in ourselves that our salvation is real. But we'll always find a good Savior in Jesus. So we need to keep looking to him and trusting in him and finding our peace and our hope in him. You know, sometimes we go through life with just a general pessimism. That everything's going to go badly. You know, if something goes well, it's going to go badly soon. And, and you can't blame us because we're Bills fans. And so we <laughs> we we get those first couple games of the season and we all get our hopes up and you're buying Super Bowl tickets, and then then we lose 14 straight. And so, so you say this is just always the way it goes for us. We're we're Western New York, we're the underdogs, there's always gonna be the dark cloud on every silver lining. But if God <laughs> if God is God and God is good and his grace is real, then stum- some stuff can just be good. can just be good with no strings attached. Like, seriously, I get to eat this meal? I don't deserve it. No, of course you don't. Enjoy it. Stop thinking about how you're going to have to have bad meals the rest of the week. Enjoy what God blesses you with. And don't feel like you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop because God's grace says there's not always another shoe. He blesses, and there's an abundance of bread that comes off his table. A lot of times we won't take risks in life. You know, we won't start the company. You won't ask the girl to marry you. You won't do any of those things because you say, I just don't know if God would bless me that much. I mean, would God bless me with her? No, of course he wouldn't. Uh, Of of course she's out of your league. But God's grace is good. Um, God's grace is good and it's enough. And sometimes he blinds their eyes so that they marry us. And so it's a good thing. We can trust We can trust that God will be good to us. He'll be good even when I just can't believe it. I almost can't believe that he would be good to someone like me. Well, it's because it doesn't depend on me. It depends on his grace and his cross. It's always enough. So when we're weak, when we doubt, when our faith feels like it's falling apart, we need to keep looking back to Jesus and recognizing that his grace is enough. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.13. It says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He holds on to his kids. You read John chapter 10, and Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, and they know me. No one will pluck them out of my hand. And my father, who is, greater, my father is greater than I, and no one will pluck them out of my father's hand. We're his. And it's, he's the one who keeps us. He's the one who blesses us. It's never been because of us. So why do we think that when we have a bad week, we're no longer going to get blessed? We have a God who's, who's very, very good. You know, this whole Gospel of Mark, this was written primarily to a Roman audience, not primarily to Jews. And a big point that Mark's trying to drive home all throughout this book is that Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews. God is now blowing those doors of Israel wide open, and he is going to bless the entire world through these people and through this Savior. And so in Mark, the first one who actually gets one of Jesus' parables without Jesus having to explain it is this unclean Canaanite woman. The first one that Jesus commissions to go out and spread his word is Legion, a guy who was possessed by demons and ran around naked and shrieking and cutting himself. And Jesus speaks a word and cleanses him and then tells him to go out and preach the gospel. The first one who recognizes who Jesus is and calls him the son of God is a demon-possessed man in a synagogue. A big point of this gospel of Mark is that those who seem like they're far off are actually very near. And those who think that because they've, they're really good, they're near to Jesus, are actually quite far away. In Matthew, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, the people who had the resume, who, who, their works made it look like they were close to Jesus, Jesus said this to them in Matthew twenty-one thirty-one, It says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds and believe him. The message of the gospel is that those who are far are near and those who think they're near are far away. So this is good news for all of us. Because we didn't come in having lived this great week. We didn't come in with a great resume. You know, we may come in with a religious veneer, but deep down the Spirit's probably poking at you, showing that it's hypocrisy, showing the ways that you're not consistent. And so we come in, and it just seems like we're so far from Jesus. But the good news is that when we recognize how far from him we are, that's when we're near. Because it's only when we recognize our need, only when we get desperate like this woman is, that we actually call out to him for salvation and find a savior. So that's what happens. In verse 29, it says, And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. And we don't quite catch this in the English, but he he draws all the attention to her word. This could be translated Jesus saying, Oh, this word. Her answer is right. Wow, what an answer! Yes, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. She recognizes the grace and the abundance of Jesus. She recognizes that he's good. She doesn't deny that she's a dog. She just knows that he's good enough to bless her. And that's why her prayers are answered. That's why she's blessed, because she recognizes she's not worthy of it. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to rescue us, and it's not because of us. Listen to Psalm 103, verse 10. It says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. We see in God nothing but abundance and blessing and a willingness to bless those who have sinned. We see a God who doesn't treat us according to our iniquities. And this is very good news. And the reason this whole thing is possible is because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who ate at his Father's table, the one who, if anyone should eat first, it's Jesus, came to this earth and he became a dog for us. He became like an unclean thing. They treated him poorly. They beat him. The Bible says he became sin for us who knew no sin so that we could be made the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, became a dog so that we dogs could become the sons of God. And that's the good news of the gospel. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be at this table. But here I am because Jesus took my place. Because Jesus gave me his righteousness. Because he adopted me as a son, even though I'm a dog. The grace of God is amazing. It's abundant. This is why we get together to remind ourselves of it. This is why we need to be in the word to hear it. This is why we need to pray so that our hearts would change and line up with it. Because if we miss this, if we miss the answer that this woman had, we miss everything. We can read the whole Bible. We can memorize the whole thing. We can study the scripture because in it we think we have life. But if we miss that it speaks of Jesus and we miss that it speaks of his gospel, we miss the entire point. But if we get it, that answer is is what changes us. That answer is what connects us to God and changes our lives. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. Just Talking first to Christians, the reason that we're, we've been made the children of God, the reason we've been adopted, the reason we've been given a place at the table is because Jesus became a dog for us. It's because he he paid for all of our sins on the cross. It's because he was was killed, he was buried, and he rose again. He did all of that to pay the price so that we could have everlasting life and so we could be with God. That's good news, but so often what we'll do is we'll diminish that grace by thinking, well, I contribute something to that. You know, it's my performance that makes me right with God. It's my good resume that makes me right with God. But all of that is a denial of the awesomeness of the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's turn from those other things that we trusted to give us right standing with God and trust in Jesus again and be renewed by him again. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ, uh, probably what you've heard that the Christian message is is that you've been bad, so now you need to do good things and then God will accept you. But that is not the Christian message. Even the most well-behaved dog can't make himself a child. So so even if you cleaned up your life now, you, you won't be able to change who you are. You won't be able to change that fundamentally you've been sinful and rebelled against God. You can't wash away all the old stains. But the Christian message is that there's one who can. That Jesus Christ, who's all God and all man, came to this earth. He lived the perfect life that none of us could live. He died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again. So that if we'll turn from our sin, so if we'll turn from our unbelief, if we'll turn from every effort we were making to save ourselves, whether it's through religion or good works or whatever it was we thought would save us, if we'll turn from all of that and trust in Jesus, then we will have our sins forgiven and we'll have everlasting life with him. We'll be adopted as his sons and daughters, not because we deserve a thing, but because his grace is that good. So if you recognize that gap between you and God, turn from sin and unbelief and trust in Christ today. The Bible says whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believing in him is not a matter of going through some ritual. It's not even a matter of praying the certain words of a certain prayer. It's a matter of turning from whatever you thought was saving you or whatever was numbing you, for you to your need for a Savior and trusting in Christ, yielding to Christ. Believing that he is who he said he is and that he did what the Bible says that he did, that he died for your sins. And then as you trust in him and turn from everything else, he adopts you as, your child, as his child. He makes you his kid and gives you a spot at the table where there's abundance and there's blessing forever. Father, we just thank you for your word. Jesus, your gospel is amazing. Lord, I just don't get sick of talking about it, that, that, that the son would become a dog so that we dogs could become sons. Uh, Lord, we are in awe we're amazed. Your goodness to us is abundant. Lord, there's so much bread falling off our table. You you have richly blessed us in your son. Lord, we're so quick to feel like we don't have all we need, to feel like there's something more. But Jesus, there is nothing more than you. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing our hearts need more than your gospel. So we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your truth. Lord, if we could repay you, we would, but we can't. There's nothing we can do to repay you. So we're just going to drink deeply of it and say thank you, And Lord, may our lives be changed by it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.